Hello, I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Scott Soshnick. On this weekly podcast, we explore the big money issues in the world of sports and talk to some of the biggest players in the industry. We would also like to welcome our new affiliate, 1067 The Fan in Washington, D.C. On this week's show, we have Barstool's CEO, Erica Nardini. But first, let's take a look at the top stories of the week. Joining us is Bloomberg Business of Sports reporter Eben Novi williams And let's start with the NBA franchises, all 30. Which one is at least worth a billion dollars? Take a guess. Go ahead. Go ahead. Which one is worth at least a billion? I have a guess. The top one, I should say. <laughs> Todos. All of them. Every single one. Of the top, tops on the list, we go to New York because of the media market, and they own the building. They own the network. We know, we know that. But the news here out of Forbes is that every single franchise, 30 out of 30, yeah. is worth more than a billion. And if you put anything on the market these days, would anybody be surprised if it sold for more than a billion? Utah, small, no. I mean, because of the national media money, these things have great value. It's amazing how quickly this is this has happened. When when Tom Gores and Platinum Equity bought the Pistons in 2011 for 300-something million, uh, that seemed like a normal price. And when Tony Ressler bought the Hawks three years ago for 700 and change, we thought that was crazy. Michael, I want to let you know, by high. the way, that is an unprepared, didn't know that was coming, Eben Novi Williams throwing out Platinum Equity, yeah, Tony Ressler, yeah. and the numbers. Look at that. You, you got a fruitcake <laughs> coming to me, man. That's pretty yeah, That was pretty 700 something is, uh, is, is yeah. an exact number. <laughs> That's okay. um, but yeah, it's amazing that, that numbers that seemed high even a couple of years ago are now insanely good deals, really, uh, for, for some of the smaller back-end teams in the NBA now that everyone's over that billion dollars. The only mark. people not happy about this are the bankers that are hired to sell these franchises because the expectations of sellers these days are totally out of whack. And it's not help when, by the way, somebody does bid up, let's say, the Miami Marlins to $1.2 billion, and we'll see how that works out for Derek Jeter and Bruce Sherman moving forward. But the expectations are insane. Worth huh. noting, these are Forbes valuations. Of the four leagues, obviously valuations are going up in every league because that's the trend right now. The NFL is the league that has the smallest amount of growth year over year of franchise valuation. How much is it driven by the stars in the NBA, and how much is it simply because of the product itself? It's media. It's it's driven by media. ESPN got a 3x increase on the how what they had to pay. NBA is popular globally. They're popular on Snapchat, Twitter. That's what's driving these valuations. You mentioned football. Our next topic, the Murdochs are defending the $3 billion price tag that they paid for Thursday night football. Just like ESPN had to justify the 3x increase on the NBA, at what point... And this will be a loss leader. This contract itself will be a money loser. But for Fox, that was woefully behind in prime time. They can promote, promote, promote. They will bring 18 to 34-year-old male demo to the football screen. What can they do off of that? Does it boost everything else? Lachlan Murdoch says yes. They will work with the NFL to get better matchups on Thursday night than than what have been given in previous years. Good this luck. year especially uh, <laughs> was not was not a great lineup. I'll say um, it again. Good luck. But Scott's right. This is a, a company that's in a unique situation, especially given the sale of a lot of its sports access uh, to Disney and ESPN earlier this year. Uh, this 
NFL product was more important to Fox th- than it probably would have been to any other TV linear network out there. Well, you and know the answer to this the What did CBS do in their offer? What did NBC do in their offer? They, they bid less than they than they offered last they, year. They bid less. Yeah. TNT, Turner, didn't make a bid. ABC did not make a bid. So why was this worth this much to Fox? Because they needed to have it. Let's see now if they're able to execute on the plan of having football two days during the week. I've got to ask this. I know we're going a little bit off topic here, but you talk about giving the Ziggy to the Indianapolis Colts. Let's hope that Josh McDaniels is right about what he's going to do and stay with the New England Patriots and not take the head coaching job. You'd have to think that he's got some sort of certainty from the crafts that he's going to be the next guy. He certainly got a raise. Let's see if he knows what he's doing. On now to the next topic, and there is a fight brewing in Major League Baseball. According to union head Tony Clark, we should not be having all of these free agents unsigned at this time, especially with pitchers and catchers a week away. So I'll give you guys a fact. The free agent market in baseball is going through a massive correction. Uh, Players are not getting the salaries they probably would have gotten a couple years ago for their numbers, uh, and they're not signing at the rate that they have in previous free agencies. The big question is, why is this happening? And we've seen Tony Clark and the Players Union uh, say that it's a little suspicious, that maybe there's even teams working together to suppress the market and and, and delay the signings. Uh, And then we have Say the word, Eben. Say the word. Teams working together (laughs) to suppress. The big big C word in uh, sports labor. (laughs) Uh, And then we had the the league come out. Baseball came out a couple days ago with a very strongly worded statement, essentially saying that players and agents have misread the market um, and that they are deliberately doing their agents are doing their players a disservice uh, by telling them not to take nine-figure deals that are on the table. The concerning Uh, part, though, with that statement was they had said that players had been offered nine-figure deals, and then the union came back and others' agents said, wait, baseball's not supposed to know what these offers are. It's going to get uglier uh, before it gets better. Pitchers and catchers report in a week. We're getting close to spring training starting, uh, and so far the biggest stars in the free agent market are still unsigned. Our thanks to Bloomberg Business of Sports reporter Eben Novi Williams. Now let's get to this week's interview with Barstool's CEO, Erica Nardini. By the way, we'd also like to welcome our new affiliate, 1067 The Fan in Washington, D.C. Lots of colleges in the D.C. area, Michael. American, Georgetown, GW. I'll bet you a lot of those kids, and I can say kids at this state of my life, <laughs> probably like Barstool Sports, and they probably like what they're doing on the content side. Let's see what they're doing on the business side. And that is Erica Nardini. She is the CEO of Barstool. She is in charge. Erica, thank you very much for taking some time out at the Makers Conference in L.A. Thank you for having me. Let me ask you this. What attracted you to this job in particular? There were a lot of things that attracted me to Barstool. Um, One, I was very familiar with the brand and mostly on the consumer side, not from a business perspective, but I saw how guys I knew felt about Barstool. I watched how they read Barstool. Um, I watched mostly how they shared it, to be honest. And what I saw was a brand that had a very deep personality, a huge sense of meaning with its audience. And I think that what Dave Portnoy and uh, Kevin Clancy and Dan Katz and Keith Markovich captured was a zeitgeist of 
a New England college age or post-college guy, and they were able to share with them, you know, a view on the world that was completely relatable, incredibly funny, and it kept kept their fans coming back for more. So, so I saw the effect before joining Barstool of that. I saw the effect that Barstool had on its fans. I also saw the potential for what Barstool could be as a business especially in the way that they, Dave in particular, connected commerce, in particular T-shirts, with topics, headlines, themes, and the way that he was able to motivate people to buy T-shirts. So before joining Barstool, I probably had 15 Barstool T-shirts that that made its way through my house constantly, uh, and that I saw most guys that I know know wearing. Um, so when it, the opportunity presented itself, and I was really grateful that it did, I was familiar with the brand. I was familiar with the backstory and the quest that, that Dave had started in 2004, and I saw what it meant to its target audience, and I think it's incredibly, you know, I thought it was incredibly rare. Now, it's fair to say, by the way, that I am out of the target audience. Michael Barr is so far out of the target audience, he can't even see it in the rear <laughs> view. Right, even in... if objects are closer than they appear, you cannot see I'm in a rocking chair stool. That's where I am. Yeah, but you have history at AOL. You're the CMO at AOL, and I guess then you align a vision with what Tim Armstrong is doing at Oath. It's a compilation of brands. He sees the value of brands, and this is certainly in the sports world. This is one of the most popular brands out there. Yeah, you know, I think consumer brands, especially in media, are very, very rare. When you Typically, when you ask an executive at a big media company or media brand, you ask them about who they care about and, and who they motivate for. Typically, it's advertisers. That's been at least my experience. And what Barstool always has and really always will have is just a maniacal focus on its audience. And that's for me, what I really loved about Barstool is that it is a consumer brand. When you see the engagement level that we have, when you see the crowds that show up when we go places, when you see the way fans react to any and all of our personalities, you see the power of a brand. You saw it in Saturdays for the Boys, right? It started as a tweet from John Feidelberg last summer. Um, or the summer before, actually, and you saw that it became an anthem. So, you know, for me, I think we are one of, if not the only, truly consumer brand in media, where our single biggest stakeholder is our audience. It's not cable distribution. It's not the advertising community. It's not distribution via social platforms. We care about our audience, and I think it shows in the content we create. I think it shows in the way we create our content, and I think it shows in the numbers and the level of engagement with that content. You have a huge audience. I think it's, what, about 250 million views per month. Now, unfortunately, though, uh, for your product, uh, it has been criticized for being sexist. Uh, Can you take us through that, and how do you address that? You know, Barstool faces a lot of criticism. Um, I think most disruptive companies or disruptive brands or disruptive people face criticism. So part of that, it for me, is just par for the course and always has been par for the course. Barstool has its 
fair, if not an outright disproportionate share of haters. Um, I don't think our content is sexist. I've talked about this a lot. I think our content is unfiltered. I think it's authentic. We produce, you know, 180 pieces of content a week. We were at the Super Bowl. We created 500 blogs in seven days. So we produce an incredible amount of content. Not everyone likes the content. Uh, not everyone finds us funny. Um, but what I see is that we have an incredibly talented, I would argue the most talented bench of personalities in the business. They are sharing their takes on the world. They're sharing their takes on what's funny. Those are they resonate. Sometimes they don't resonate. Sometimes they offend. Most times I think they don't offend. Um, but we're a controversial brand because these guys call it like they see it. They don't have an agenda. They don't believe that anything is sacred. Um, and they're threatening. They're disruptive. So, you know, I, I think, frankly, much of the criticism comes from people who don't actually read Barstool or engage with Barstool. Um, and, you know, I've, I've said it in the past, which is it's, you know, it's easy to typecast Barstool as offensive. It's easy to typecast Barstool as sexist. I think if you actually dig in, you'll find that neither is true. It's really just a company that, that really cares about its audience, that feels that it has an obligation to its fans and is, you know, doing anything for a laugh. We're talking to the CEO of Barstool Sports, Erica Nardini. Talk about unfiltered. You should have been in my house when they were clanging them off the uprights for the Super Bowl. That was just like, <laughs> you talk about unfiltered. I'm glad we weren't on the air at the time. But Michael had eight bucks riding it. Yeah. <laughs> Where do you see Barstool Sports going? What's the future for it? You know, um, like I had mentioned, I don't think Barstool is a company with a grand plan. We... You know, we experiment constantly. We push the boundaries constantly. I think you will see us in the future. You know, we're just coming off a pretty incredible Super Bowl week um, where I would argue we really challenged the notion of why Radio Row. We showed the power of a brand to mobilize an audience, and we will see us continue to do that. I think the future holds us becoming a bigger brand. I think the future holds us being on more platforms. I think the future holds us moving. We moved, you know, three weeks ago, we moved into linear audio. So we moved into 12 hours of programming on Sirius XM. Uh, you will see us do the same thing in video. You'll see us build subscription products. You'll see us launch new brands. Um, but the same basic principles that have guided Barstool to this date will hold true, which is we want to connect with our audience. We want to find more people to be part of that audience. We want to give them a great product. We want to make them laugh. We want to make them feel great about buying a pay-per-view from us or watching Rough and Rowdy or buying a T-shirt or a hoodie or a flag. We want them to feel like things like Saturdays for the Boys mean something. And then we, what we will do is basically take those brands or the IP that we create or the ideas that we form or the companies that we buy or create, and we will bring them to more people in more places. This sounds a lot like my conversation with Dana White not long ago, where it became apparent that his plan, and you say there's no like, specific plan, 
But his goal was for UFC to become a global lifestyle brand. It's, yeah. That sounds like what I'm hearing here. Like, you want Barstool yeah, to be a, a lifestyle brand. brand. Yep, 100%. And you do that, what, you're thinking about opening some bars, you've got some boxing events. What won't you touch, if anything? We, <laughs> we won't touch anything that... Um, that doesn't feel right to our audience. So you won't see us go into places that don't feel authentic, which I realize is kind of a non-answer, but, you know, you'll, you'll see us be, you know, one of the things I spend a lot of time thinking about is, is the choices we have in front of us. What we say yes to and what we say no to will be the biggest arbiters of our success because, you know, while we punch above our weight and we are a very big brand with a massive following, we're still a really small company. So the choices that we make are really important because we'll pour ourselves into whatever it is we decide to do. Um, and so the things that we will choose are things which we feel will have the best resonance with our audience, will have the best chances of creating either a great content or a great, either great content or a great product um, for our fans and then are able to um, be profitable. We are chatting with Erica Nardini, the CEO of Barstool Sports. And Erica, can you break down your demographic, the audience demographic for me, male, female, age? Yeah, of course. So one of the things that's interesting about Barstool is that we have while we have a massive brand and a very large following, that following is nuanced based on the platform. So, for example, when you look at our fifth-year show, so last August uh, we created a brand called Fifth Year, and the concept was College Never Ends. It's predominantly an Instagram account. Uh, it crossed a million followers a week and a half ago. Uh, fifth year on Snapchat has a very young demo, so it's probably the average age is 17, and it's 50-50 men and women. So guys follow it and girls follow it. On Instagram, that same brand ages up to, I would say, about 20, 22, maybe up to 25, more predominantly male than female. Um, when you look at the blog, our skew is far more male. Our skew is much older. But I would say across all of our platforms, whether it's on Twitter or Facebook, whether it's on Sirius or our blog, um, Snapchat, of course, you'll see an age range of people following Barstool from age, you know, 14. We have, like, the GoPres Go guys who are 14 years old or pizza re people who love pizza reviews, which are any and all ages. Count me in. 50, 50, nice. One bite. <laughs> um, <laughs> but all the way up to age 50, right? So... We have, you know, predominantly male is what I would say is a headline, um, big age swath from 14 to 49, increasingly female. You know, we launched Chicks in the Office uh, with two, you know, phenomenally talented women at Barstool. They talk about entertainment and celebrity headlines. They are growing a very large female audience in social. They have a large male following on Barstool. So, it's hard to pin us because we have, you know, we have about 18 brands that sit under and around Barstool, um, and we're really aggressive about growing those brands and finding audiences for those brands. And mostly what we care about is people who get our sensibility, and that could be the, sens the sensibility of Rhea and Fran for Chicks in the Office. It could be the sensibility of a pizza review with Dave. It could be the sensibility of, you know, we launched a show two weeks ago with Dave's 
dad, so Mike Portnoy, and his uncle, cousin Murray, who are in their 70s. So we have two 70-year-olds on <laughs> That's the radio my speed show. right there. Yeah, there you go. You <laughs> love the show. Mike and the Murdogs. Uh, it's a great bit of programming. But anyways, we have a show with two 70-year-olds and a 30-year-old. So we're just, we, we don't conform to any age demo. We don't have a bunch of scientists or data engineers back at the ranch being like, this is what we should go after. This is what we should do. You know, Dave's done a brilliant job of stewarding the content and understanding what's funny and what's relevant. Um, and so as a result, we find a lot of people from a lot of different age groups, from a lot of different geographies in the U.S. who follow either us in, in the whole or they follow us in part. Well, we should at least, Michael, welcome the uh, the folks at the Fan in Washington on 106.7 yes. FM, new, new for the program. And I'm sure as a college town, they probably have more than a few barstool fans there and we're chatting with Erica Nardini the CEO of Barstool Sports and as you grow and as you take outside money and it's worth noting that the churning group is now the controlling stakeholder of the company do you have to get a bit more conservative Erica are there more layers of filtering what can and cannot be put out there no um the churning group is you know single most phenomenal partner for this company, they, Peter Chernin, Jesse Jacobs, Mike Hearns, have been incredible advocates uh, for Dave and for myself, and then most importantly for the company and the brand at large. We we're not going to build our business by anybody else's rules, right? So when I think about Barstool, Dave created a reality show in 2004. I helped Dave create a company in 2016. So we are building a company right now in 2018 that will be what a company looks like built in the social age with the benefit of having a 15-year audience, a 15-year bench of content, a 15-year sense of loyalty and affinity. So um, Barstool is what Barstool is. I think you will see us build into this company more. Uh, you'll see us build subscription products. You'll see us acquire brands and other companies. Rough and Rowdy is a great example of that. I so don't what, what are you going to ask folks to pay for? If it's going to be a subscription product, what am I going to get that I don't already get? You will get, uh, you will get content that – you will not pay for content that exists today you will get new content from Barstool, which is exclusive to subscription. So, and that will, we'll unveil that in the coming months. Um, our fans pay for Rough and Rowdy and fans of Rough and Rowdy by Rough and Rowdy. So one of the things I'm very interested in, I believe in the Rough and Rowdy brand because it's electric pay-per-view content. It's amateur boxing. It originated in West Virginia. It's backyard brawls. And what we believe is that young guys or fans of boxing or just college kids on a Friday night will want to watch for, you know, I would say a very affordable price, four hours of incredible content that's live from, in this case, we have a fight on the 16th from Morgantown, West Virginia. So we will build a revenue stack underneath Barstool and underneath the brands that we create or we acquire that are reflective of what the most valuable revenue stack looks like today. So we'll have commerce, we will have subscription, we will have pay-per-view, 
we will do great work for our ad partners. We will do events. So we're building a revenue stack that is in and of itself diverse. So people who want to invest in a more exclusive experience, a deeper experience, a membership experience can do that. People who want to buy a pay-per-view fight on a Friday night can do that. People who want to watch Barstool for free because that's what they've always done will be able to do that. Will you do brick and mortar as well? Potentially, yeah. Talking to the CEO of Barstool Sports, Erica Nardini, you were, as Scott mentioned earlier, the former chief marketing officer of AOL. Can you talk about that experience of how that has brought over to being the CEO of this product for Barstool Sports? You know, I had a great experience at AOL. AOL, you know, when I got there, um, we were making a very strong pivot into video. Um, we had acquired, uh, just prior to me getting there, a company called Five Men, um, which was a video syndication platform le- led by Ron Harnevo. We bought a company called Adapt TV, um, which was a programmatic video platform, and we were making a very large push into becoming a video-first company, which I, I really loved that experience. Um, the other piece that was really great about, you know, and fascinating about working with AOL was, you know, one, AOL was making a pivot from, you know, obviously declining subscription businesses. Tim had acquired 32 blogs over the course of the past, you know, five years or five or six years by the time I got there. And we were working to consolidate what the go-to-market looked like. So what the go-to-market looked like for consumers. So how would you come into, in in this case, makers, right? So how would you come into makers? What other content could you find from AOL at the time that was related to makers content or to TechCrunch content or to HuffPost content? Um, And so, you know, what AOL taught me was, you know, and gave me the opportunity to do was to look over a very large portfolio to reshape and form that portfolio to optimize how we went to market for from a consumer point of view and from a B2B point of view, uh, and then to, you know, make the pivot with people like Ron to a video-first company. Um, and that was exciting. So, you know, the things that I've taken with me from that are – you know, the ability to scale, the importance of video, the understanding of, of a go-to-market strategy, the under the importance of cohesion across a set of assets or brands or products, um, and the ability to drive all of those things simultaneously at scale. Erica, I like when you talk about these college kids staying at home on Friday night to watch a boxing event or wh- whatever. I know what they're not watching. They're not watching the 11.30 p.m. Sports Center. And we've right. gone 25 minutes and we haven't spoken about ESPN yet. And Disney's numbers came out. Subscriber losses again. Advertising dollars down. Do the kids today, and the younger demo seems to be your wheelhouse, how much they care about live sports versus what used to be shoulder programming, which now seems to be principal program? I have a strong point of view on it. And my point of view is that all that matters is frame of reference. And that is why I am such a big believer in Barstool is because we have a very strong frame of reference. And what we have to say is as compelling as what we are talking about. That's the, that's the gift that, and the magic of Barstool that, that Dave has driven from day one. Um, Do we see advantage Barstool in a world 
where nobody watches just one screen. So if I've got the iPad open or the phone and the TV, if there's a TV, perhaps the game isn't the first screen. Perhaps everything I'm doing with my pals is first screen with game or maybe sports betting in the background. Yeah, you know, everything is changing. And, you know, Twitter disrupted SportsCenter, in my opinion, which is you don't need to wait for, you don't need to wait to 11, till 1130 to understand what happened today in sports. Um, people love Scott Van Pelt. I'm a huge fan of Scott Van Pelt. So people will tune into SVP because they love him and he has something to say. But the world has changed. You know, I, I think people will, if you look at the Super Bowl and, you know, people will always have affinity towards live sports. It's highly perishable. It's hugely engaging. It carries great meaning. Um, it's also pretty darn expensive. It's super expensive. And so when you look at the cost structure of traditional media companies where all of the investment is going towards rights, you, and then you you have the quandary of what do you put around that. And, you know, I don't. I sit in a company that will never have – live sports rights, or that I think is highly, highly unlikely. So, you know, Advantage Barstool is how do we create the best content that is relevant or surrounding that game, that topic, that event. And when you look at Rough and Rowdy, I'm getting into the live event business of my own right and creating value in a live event experience that is uniquely Barstool, that can only come from Barstool, um, and we will do the same thing. So we will do both pieces. We'll produce a live event. We will create shoulder programming around that event. We will do commentary in that event. What other brand in sports do you admire? Um, that's a great question. You know, I admire Men in Blazers. Oh, that, yeah, that does have that, that caught on. That, that has a talk about loyal followings, yes. Yeah, I love, you know, I think Michael Davies has, you know, has been a great partner to Barstool. He is a phenomenal talent in his own right, and they have they've, they have a, a funny perch around, you know, soccer or football. Um, so, I, I, you know, I like what they're doing. I think NBC has, has taken, has done a great job of, you know, acquiring pro football talk and, and launching men in blazers. So it's, you know, you're seeing – you're seeing big network companies find affinity brands with and 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 placing them within their portfolio. Dan Patrick is a great example. Um, we don't spend I don't spend a whole lot of time looking to sports companies as the you know as a roadmap of of where we will go. Right, we look a lot to comedy brands. I look at Vice. I look at Saturday Night Live. So, you know. We're, we're a unique beast in that we are a company that is born of the internet, and our focus is much more on the the internet. You know, a sports brand that I think is very interesting is Overtime, um, and the way that they have found and used Instagram to capture highlights from college basketball. Overtime is a very interesting brand. It's an it's a a fast, fast, fast growing social account, and, they, and they're building a data platform around it, which which I think is unrivaled. So that's a brand I look at to say to say that's a disruptive, futuristic brand around high school basketball. 
We are talking with the CEO of Barstool Sports, Erica Nardini. By the way, I understand that you guys had a big part in the Super Bowl that just passed. Can, let's talk about that right quick. Yeah, so we had a huge Super Bowl week. Um, we did, you know, we we had 10 hours of daily radio at Cowboy Jacks, which was a fantastic spot we posted up there during uh, the, the Super Bowl week. We drove their biggest bar day in history just by virtue of the crowds that we brought. We delivered over 500 blogs. We grew, you know, over 50,000 app downloads in a week. We drove you know, over 25 million video views just in one week alone. And we grew faster in social during that one week than Bleacher and ESPN combined. So it was a big week for us. And, and mostly I think it was a big week because we covered the Super Bowl differently than than any traditional company would. And the volume of content and the way that we were on site and accessible to our audiences during a heightened sports period is really emblematic of the way Barstool makes content, how we distribute content, and how we engage our audiences in that content. Erica Nardini, CEO of Barstool Sports, put up with Scott and Old Man Bar. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Takeaways from the interview. Erica, by the way, obviously she is very good at what she does, and she has an interesting product. And we talked about the subject that some view it as sexist, but my goodness, you have millions of people downloading this and and following Barstool. Well, yeah, my takeaway is there's just no apologies. This is what we are. We are authentic to our customers. They are loyal to us. And because they are loyal, we can monetize in many different ways. This is not just content. It's not just podcasts, not just articles. This is going to be perhaps brick and mortar stores like Apple. They found guys to come into their store, found people to come in and buy and use. This is going to be, or they're trying to be, a global lifestyle brand. And you and I know plenty of folks who would like to consume whatever it is they're selling. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since kids. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. Time now for the number of the week, and I'm wording it this way, 2030. 2030, so it's got to be Olympics related. We're going out into the Olympic horizon. Uh, Salt Lake City. There you go. Okay, you go. not bad, not bad. They put in their they they're going to put in their bid for the Olympics. Yes, I know they had problems in the 2002 ones, but solved by Mitt Romney. Solved by Mitt Romney, <laughs> and quite and to be honest, the games itself they were good. They yeah. they were a good host. Now there are other people probably going to get involved in this. Reno will probably get involved in this. But what are the odds that Salt Lake City can uh, win the Olympics? They've done it before. They know how to do it. And most importantly, as we have discussed ad nauseum on this show with folks like Casey Wasserman, much of the infrastructure is there. There is no longer appetite, taxpayer appetite, say, what's this going to cost us? We'd like to have the Olympics? Sure. But if it's going to cost us billions of dollars to make a facility, to make a ski jump, to make an athlete's village, then we're not interested anymore. That's not the case in Salt Lake City, so you'd have to say 
they have as good a shot at anybody as winning a game. And, of course, everybody is going to be watching what happens in South Korea and how well they are successful in their Olympics. And when it's all said and done, what's going to happen to their city? And like you just said, it's like, are they going to be stuck with a white elephant several years down the well, road? Well, you know how they, they've done away with these now is that there is no elephant. They just they make stadiums that are designed to just get taken down. They cost less, and they just go away. So no problem of a white elephant if the elephant is removed. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We are here each and every week at the same time exploring the world of money and sports. I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Scott Soschnick. Thanks for joining us. And please tune in next week when we speak with the biggest and brightest in the sports business industry. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio around the world and online as an Apple podcast on iTunes. 